Continuing our sermon series uh, through the rest of this year and into early January called Fight the Drift. Uh, we have been working through the book of 1 Corinthians, and so I'm going to encourage you to take out a Bible, um, to look at one on your device, or to reach out in front of you if you did not bring a Bible, and uh, look at the Bible that is in that pew in front of you. And turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is found in the New Testament, um, and so it's toward uh, the middle of the New Testament, so we're toward the middle of the back end of your Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking today at five verses in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 7. And we're going to be specifically looking at the gift of intimacy in marriage. And so follow along with me as we read the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians, chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the word of the Lord. It's important for us to remember this morning uh, the value of text and context. So many people, especially people who are ignorant of the word or know very little about it, Uh, have a tendency to pick out passages of Scripture, not considering what has come before it, nor what has come after it. They cherry-pick, as we say. They pick a verse, and they uh, create some sort of belief system or dialogue without understanding its text and its context. And this morning, the text and context is going to be extremely important for us or there will be a temptation to run from one direction or one extreme to the other extreme. With your Bibles open, I want to just walk briefly with you just a few chapters back. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just to remind you of where we kind of left off in June before we took our Summer in the Psalms series break. If you remember that in chapter 5, that Paul begins to talk about these very things. Remember that the city of Corinth is a very wild place. It is, uh, the church there is very small, and the culture is uh, very engrossed in sexual immorality. Uh, they worshipped pagan gods and goddesses. 
And so even in forms of worship to those gods and goddesses, uh, they would engage in uh, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is uh, sexual acts outside of the boundaries of God. They would do so in order to appease these gods and goddesses, to get favor from these gods and goddesses. So fornication, that's um, sexual activity before you get married, or adultery is uh, having and engaging in sexual activity with someone outside of your marriage. That these, amongst a lot of other things in that realm of sexual immorality, um, that they were a part of the culture. That this is something uh, that you didn't just have to get on the internet to look for, but rather these sorts of happenings were commonplace. You just simply walk down the street. It was, it was accepted to engage in all sorts of these acts. And then, through the preaching of the gospel, through the Apostle Paul, the Lord plants a church in the middle of what would make Vegas look like, you know, holiday world. Was the city of Corinth. And Jesus begins to change prostitutes lives um, he used to he began to change men who used to purchase prostitutes he begins to transform the lives of homosexuals and adulterers and fornicators and abusers the worst of the worst by many of societies that he 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 goes to this place and Jesus begins to transform these people's lives. And so the people with that make up the people in the church have this history. They have this story. They have these lives pre-Jesus. And yet they're still immersed in this culture. They're fighting the drift of wanting to go back to their earlier ways of living apart from Jesus. So in our reading this morning, we get to chapter 5. Remember, this is Paul is dealing with the situation in the church of a young man who claims to be a follower of Jesus, and yet he's gauging in sexual activity uh, with his stepmom, which would be considered incest. And people in the church that know that this immorality is taking place, and they're doing nothing about it. So there is an arrogance in this young man and yet there is an arrogance in this church because they know that people are engaging in this sort of uh, promiscuous activity, and yet they're not addressing it. And so Paul explains to us the importance of addressing those things. He goes on in chapter 6, if you're following along, and there's this uh, how to deal with lawsuits uh, uh, against uh, each other as Christians. And then he goes on to say in chapter 6, uh, verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, either the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. So he's addressing, this is their past lives, but praise be to God, as he says here in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his Spirit of God. Then he goes on there, if you have your Bible in front of you, he, he talks more about the sexual immorality that needs to be addressed in the church and in the culture. And we did several weeks covering those sorts of issues. 
So we get to chapter 7, Paul is still in this frame of thinking. He is still trying to address this topic amongst the church folk because there is this division. He's spent chapter 5 and chapter 6 talking about these groups of people within the church who believe that they can follow Jesus, as we just read, and still engage in all of this sexual immorality. They can have girlfriends that they're sleeping around with. They can have boyfriends that they're sleeping around with. They can hire prostitutes, look at pornography, look at all this, and man, we love Jesus and we do these things. Why? Because if you remember the sermon, it's just our bodies. It's just a physical thing. As we get hungry, we also get aroused and act upon it. That's how they saw it. The other issue within the church, though, is another view. One view is taking it to the extreme of liberalism. The other view is taking it to legalism. In chapter 7, we will learn today that in this second view amongst church people, that even amongst people who were married, that they came to believe that as followers of Jesus, even though that we were married, that we no longer needed to engage in intimacy, physical intimacy with each other. That if we really wanted to be sanctified, that we really wanted to be righteous, one of the ways that we could illustrate that would be to deny our husband or our wives physical intimacy. So they believed that abstinence, abstinence was the best way to, to truly follow Jesus. Even if you were married, the best thing to do would be to be abstinent. All right. Does everybody understand that the, those two differences there? You've got an extreme liberalism, or what we're going to cover today is this extreme legalism to where no one ever should participate in these things. They believed by, by refraining from it, even in our marriages, that in some way we could achieve some personal righteousness. Like God would be more pleased with you if you would not engage in these things. But as we'll see today, that this is not what Jesus was about. This is not what the Bible is about. This is not what the gospel is about. It's not about being extreme, this license to engage in sex morality, nor is it the practice of legalism, but rather that sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, is a gift from God to be joyed and only enjoyed in the marriage covenant. So, let's look at this again. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good... For a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And right now, most of the males in the room are fainting. What are you talking about? But notice, to be good Bible readers, we need to understand, again, the text and the context. In our Bibles, it says at the top of your page, 1 Corinthians. But we know this, as we've studied through this book, and if you know history... He said, this is actually the second letter that Paul wrote them. He wrote one letter to them, to the church at Corinth, that we do not have any more manuscripts of. We do not have any copies of it. 
So 1 Corinthians inside of our Bibles is actually 2 Corinthians. So he wrote the first letter, and it appeared to be really confusing. And you can imagine they start sending him back all of these questions. If you remember earlier on in this series, we, we worked through some of those questions. That Paul would quote them, and then he would address it. You remember that? And I taught you to be a good Bible reader by noticing that when our Bible translators put it into quotes, then that means it's a quote from something else. So notice, look at your Bibles. It says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quotations, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Who is Paul quoting there? He is quoting the abstinence party within the church. All right? This is something that they're written, they've written back to him. And so in his writing, he's addressing this direct quote from them. Because again, there are these people who are highly confused, who are saying, even as married people, we should not be engaging in physical intimacy. And so Paul, being a good Bible reader, a good Bible scholar, being inspired by the very word of God, wants to make sure that he's addressing very practical questions amongst the congregation. He wants to bring unity. He wants to bring clarity to this understanding. And so he sets forth first, what is the question that they asked? Or what is the statement that they've made? And they've been going around telling people, hey, you guys that are being extremely liberal on this, you need to stop. And even those who are married, you need to stop. We just all need to stop with physical intimacy. Yet Paul is going to address these things. He's going to bring unity, like I said, and, and clarity. He, he, he's going to use this opportunity to illustrate within the church that we don't need to be, um, again, liberal or legalistic, but that there is a proper time and place and covenant relationship where this is not only a, a gift, but it's encouraged for us to participate in. Notice here in chapter 7, verse 2, this is Paul now addressing their quotation but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. We see that within this explanation of what's taking place, and as we saw last week as we dove into this, the, the explanation of the meaning of marriage. God, the God of the Bible, invented the institution, the relationship called marriage. Within it, that the marriage covenant is a very serious covenant. It is not one that is to be broken. In God's design, he has decided that there shall be a male and there should be a female, and in those relationships, that they bind together, that they unite together, that they become one flesh, bone of bone, and flesh of flesh, for the worship of God, that they complement each other, that they help each other, that they serve one another, that there is something about the male-female marriage relationship that is unlike any other relationship on the planet, that this is, a again, a grace of God, that marriage is a gift of God, that for the most part, God wants everyone to be married. That is by design. As we'll learn here in a few weeks, there's only a few people 
that have what is known as the gift of singleness or the gift of celibacy. God, by design, has created people to be married. And so Paul begins to address this by, by saying, okay, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, no, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That there's something that even is, is trying to take it further in this relationship due to the physical intimacy. So let's, let's keep reading here and he'll explain it even more. Verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the man does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over her, his own body, but the wife does. This morning, it is very important for us, and even if you're a parent here today, that, that we make sure that we have a healthy biblical perspective of physical intimacy. Physical intimacy within a marriage, again, is not only encouraged, but it is commanded. And most of my brothers in here are like, mm -hmm, that's right, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. But you've got to understand the context. It's ex extremely important for us to understand that this thing called physical intimacy, that it, it was not designed by sin, Satan, death, or Hollywood, but that this was designed by God. In the creation of man and in the creation of woman, it is one of the very first commandments given to this ima these image bearers of God. That, that God in some way is glorified, that he is honored, that he is worshipped, if you will, when this takes place within the marriage bedroom. When there is a covenant that has solidified this relationship. Now, again, we have to be good wordsmiths here because if in the original language, it's important for us to understand that there is this, in the Greek here, these pictures of, of service to one another, of duty to one another, that even in physical intimacy that there is a giving such as uh, the payment of a debt to one another in regards to the giving of our physical bodies. But again... What is the context? There is belief within the church that no one ever for any given reason should be engaging in this activity. And Paul, let's all take a deep breath, says, no, actually you are if you're married. He's saying we shouldn't be doing what all of these people who are just doing it however, with whomever. We should not be doing that. And yet, simultaneously, uh, we should not be abstaining from this if you are married. The Bible doesn't turn its nose or its, its eyes to, to this engagement. No, the very hand of God who placed every one of those stars and those universes in the sky is the very one that knitted our bodies together in order to fit in a way that would allow this to take place. There is nothing like it on the planet. And in the right context and in the right place, it is one of the most beautiful things that can ever happen. 
as parents and as people, we need to understand the magnitude of sexual immorality because let's, let's, you need to understand this, not all sin is the same. That's what chapter 6 addresses. These things are not all the same. Sexual sin is not the same as your wife coming in with a new hairdo and her asking the question, how does my hair look? And then you lie because you want to live. That is not the same. Is that a lie if you don't like it? Yes. And the worst one is, does this make me look fat? No. Right? I'm not saying that you should do that. But what I'm saying is, is there is a huge difference in how that lie, which is a lie, it is sinful, affects you And how sexual immorality of any sorts affects you. That's what chapter 6 is about. We covered that. I spent hours talking to you guys about those things. Okay, so go back and listen to it. We need to understand that it is important for us to get that this, this, this act of physical intimacy between husband and wife is seen in the Bible originally before sin entered into it, that it was this beautiful opportunity as the Bible describes it of, again, bone becoming of bone and flesh of flesh. This is a unity experience within the marriage relationship. But we're reminded this morning also that just because this is what the context is, that we are free to engage in this within the, the boundaries of marriage is likewise that we must be careful that this passage is not saying that one can be aggressive in the usage of it. There are two problems here. It's being sexually aggressive in a marriage, or outside of marriage for that part, or being sexually abstinent within the marriage. That there is somewhere in the middle that, that God has created in this, what the Bible would often be described as the mingling of souls. That when a man and a woman who are married in Jesus' name, that there is a, a combining of them, not just spiritually, not just in friendship, but also in this very physical image of intimacy. It is beautiful to engage in this, and yet we live in a culture that is extremely aggressive. Ladies, if he tells you that he loves you in order to engage in sexual immorality with you, he does not love you. Queen B says, if you like it, put a ring on it. And that's probably as close as she's ever going to get to the Bible. He is using you. It's actually about his ego. And likewise, in our culture, and as a college professor who's around a lot of college students and have seen a sexual revolution take place, ladies as well, it is more about your ego. So, when we look at this, it's important for us to understand this. Notice the text. The husband should give of his wife 
her physical intimacy. Like, the, the Bible is telling us that, that within the, 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 the boundaries of marriage, within the covenant of marriage, that there is this pleasure that should be given from a husband toward his wife. And likewise, and yet without it being aggressive or abstinent. We see that there is this deeper thing that is taking place, that there's a deeper parable. And this morning, I don't have time to address this because I know that our bodies, as we get older, things change. I know of people, um, even right now, I have relationships with people who have um, physical issues and problems. And and all of those things can, can be deeply grievous and sad. All right? So please let me understand, is there, make, let's be very clear here. We're not talking about a person who is sick and ill, uh, someone who has physical problems, but we are talking about a healthy man and a healthy woman, that there is something absolutely beautiful that should be taking place consistently in our marriages. And if you remember last week, that if you have a man and a woman who is actively involved in pursuing Jesus and looking at Jesus and then responding accordingly, then it's very easy to participate in these things. But because what is the purpose? In all of our marriages, we should be trying to outserve the other one, to outserve them. Not to be a, a glass rattler. You know what that is? You get to sit in your recliner, rattle that glass with ice in it, expecting your maid, also called your wife, to come and serve you? No. In mutual submission, as followers of Jesus, with our eyes on Jesus, is that, man, we should be waking up every day after a quiet time and in prayer, focusing and saying, man, how can I best serve my husband in every way this morning and all throughout the day? How can I best serve my wife, not just in physical intimacy, but that you're constantly, because this is the image of the church as well, is that you and I, if we're followers of Jesus and members of this church, is that we're constantly trying to outdo each other, not as a one-upper, but in service to Jesus, we serve each other. And the Bible is calling us to do that inside of our marriages in regards to physical intimacy. But why? Because we are one. Now, a little bit of warning here. There are people who would claim to be followers of Jesus, and I actually think that that's questionable, who want to use these passages that I've just read to you today and want to use them to abuse or manipulate or control their husband or their wife. What Paul is not talking about is that anytime at the snap of your finger that you get to demand this activity. But he is saying is that within that boundary is that, th- that this should be taking place if you're physically able to. And yet so many people have uh, cherry-picked and abused these passages specifically, not in all cases, but in many cases that, that this is some artillery for some man to demand things out of his wife. And that is not what the Bible is saying here. If there is no agape love, which is unconditional love in a relationship, 
then there should not be any eros love expected, which is the erotic love. These are two people focusing on Jesus, loving Jesus. This is not just about some appetite that you have, like hunger, that you just need this fix. No, this is about, man, how, how do we serve one another? This is not abuse. This is not manipulation. This is not control. This is not, no, you better give me this. The Bible says that I own your body. That is not what the Bible is saying. This Bible is speaking to people who are thinking if we, in our marriage, don't engage in this, then in some way we are more righteous. And Paul and the Holy Spirit and Jesus is saying, that's crazy. I have made you. I have gifted you this intimacy. Not we must be bound. We cannot. But no, look at this. Look at the beauty of this. Is that we're set free to do it. We're set free to engage in it. And if you've got two people who are friends with each other, who, who watch what they say, who are serving one another, who want to, to serve each other in a variety of different ways, then this is one of the ways that it happens. Now, notice in verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice number five, verse five, do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. How many of you guys have ever heard about fasting in the Bible? All right. Many times inside the New Testament, anytime prayer is mentioned, um, it is connected to um, this word called fasting. And fasting is that you are going to refrain from food. People have tried to make fasting into all sorts of things. But fasting, according to the Bible, is, is that I'm going to starve myself for lunch. I'm going to starve myself for dinner. Some people have done longer fasting. And it's not that God is impressed by you not eating that meal. It's that you are saying, Lord Jesus, you are more important than the food that I eat. And so that time that instead of eating lunch, and this isn't like you intermittent fasting and you said, that was for Jesus. No, this is a purposeful, I'm not going to eat dinner today. I'm not going to eat all day today. And in the time that I spent engaging in eating that meal, I'm going to set apart that time to engage in my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do these things in, in building intimacy in my relationship with Jesus. That's what fasting is inside the Bible, in a very small nutshell. The only other fast that we see inside the Bible is mentioned right here. That it's either food or sexual intimacy. But why? Do not deprive one another except perhaps for agreement. So this is not all of a sudden a husband saying, I'm sorry, I've made a vow, and... Uh, we're just not going to do that anymore. The Bible says, no, do not deprive one another. 
But it does say that there can be a time when a man and a woman who are married should come together and say, okay, we're going to fast for a short period of time, this intimacy, to show and to illustrate that Jesus, you are even more important than this fantastic gift that you have given us as a couple. And so instead of engaging in that opportunity, you're going to engage in prayer and Bible study and reading. But then you are to what? Come back together. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. It's important for us, then again, to understand the beauty of who Jesus is and the beauty of this gift of physical intimacy that he has given to us. It's important for us to understand it in its right context. Because in its right context, there is no shame. There is no guilt. There is much joy. And as we see in this passage, that by engaging in this sorts of activity within the marriage, that it provides the opportunity for you to fight the drift towards sexual sin in that marriage. It pulls us back to Jesus. It can pull us back to that covenant. Single friends, if you're here today, you need to understand this. The Bible is very clear. If you are not married, then you need to run from, flee from, as quickly as possible, all sexual sin. From pornography to you name it. If you're a follower of Jesus, that you run from those things. But why? Because God cares about you. He cares about you. As a pastor now for 20-something years, most of the issues that I've dealt with, both in my single friends and in married couples, are all revolving around this area of sexual sin or immorality or the lack of within a marriage. It's the number one cause of divorce. It's sex and money. And so this is a huge problem for us if we do not see it through the lens of the Bible. And so think about this. God's not saying, do whatever you want to do. God is also saying, oh, I'm not more impressed with you because you're not doing it in your marriage. No, he's saying, I, I want you to, in a healthy relationship with Jesus, a healthy relationship with that husband and that wife, is that, no, I, I'm giving you this great gift. Like, it is absolutely beautiful. There is nothing like it on the planet. And Jesus freely gives this to us. Imagine if it was as simple as a high five. That that's all it was. But that would not illustrate what he has so commanded even back in Genesis. That would not illustrate this mingling of the souls. That would not illustrate this bone of bone and flesh of flesh. He has given us this great gift to experience with one. And in doing so, help to fight the drift towards sexual immorality. Now, briefly, because I've got a few points here that I'm going to go through really quickly to try to put this all together. 
Well, I'll tell you what. I've changed my mind. I'll save that until I go on here further. So, I'm going to give you six things. All right? Last week was very uh, theological. It was a theology of marriage. It was understanding what is the purpose of marriage. Based on this passage, what I, what I want to hopefully show you this morning is, is very quickly six things in order to, to help put some practical understanding about this gift that has been given to us. First is this idea of unification. In unification. That physical intimacy between a married man and a married woman that God has given it and designed it in such a way that we would be unified in that marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, he says, Then he said to the man, This is at lust, bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she has taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, Union, bone of bone, flesh of flesh, they shall become. In one of my favorite books, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, I've quoted it even some of last week from Tim and Kathy Keller. Here are two quotes for you reflecting this. In other words, marriage is a union between two people so profound that they virtually become a new single person. The word unified means to make a binding covenant or contract. This covenant brings every aspect of two persons lives two-person lives together, they essentially merge into a single legal, social, economic unit. They lose much of their independence. In love, they donate themselves wholly to one another. Then the next side. The Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to a person without becoming vulnerable in every way because you have, uh, you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage. We see here that there is a uniting, that in God's creation, in this creation of physical intimacy, that there is this union, this bond that should not be happening with anyone else. This is why if you read the Old Testament and people start engaging in sexual immorality with someone other than their husband or their wives, like there is great punishment even to the point of death. That in many ways, that even if you begin to have activity with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, I don't know if those exist by then, but if you engage in that sort of activity, that it was believed then that you were going to have to take them as your wife. We are to be bound, we are to be bone of bone and flesh of flesh with one person. We are giving them our whole selves. When we get married, we're saying, man, this is my mind, this is my emotions, this is my body, and it is all yours. This is a gift from God, and I give it to you. Imagine just with me for a moment that you got uh, a marriage uh, invitation to, to go to someone's wedding. All right? it's, it's almost the end of summertime. A lot of those happen in the summer, and you get this invitation. And you're invited here to the church to watch two people get married. And so they stand up here, and she wears the, the, the bride. She looks beautiful. The back doors fly open. The, the groom is standing up here, and he's waiting for 
his bride to come. They come up here to the center of this stage, and the preacher welcomes everybody, thanks them for coming, says a few words, and then says, all right, we'll see you later. You're dismissed. With no reading of vows, without any statement of the covenant, this is what's often happening, or it is happening, anytime that you're engaging in sexual activity outside of your marriage. You are pretending to have a wedding. You are pretending to have a wedding. You, in some way, through sin, are trying to unite yourself to someone who is not your husband or not your wife. That's why Paul would say earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. One of the major goals of this gift is to unify husband and wife. But so many people that fall into sexual immorality, they are trying to have a wedding. They're pretending to have the wedding. They're they're trying to unify themselves with someone who is not their husband or their wife. And God takes this extremely serious. Now, this is preacher talk. Pretty much every preacher you hear talk about this passage will use this illustration. And since I'm way below many of them, I'll steal their example. Physical intimacy is a beautiful, again, gift. It is meant to unify, but it has its place. I don't know about you, but I love a fire. I love having a fire pit. I wish I had real logs in my house. I don't, but I wish I did. From a time I was a small kid, I don't know if I was a pyro or what, but I've always loved fire. I was setting stuff on fire, burning lots of things, and I still have gotten almost caught in trouble in the middle of a subdivision as I had a two-foot-high bonfire in my backyard one time here in Bowling Green. That was quite an experience. Two-story, not two-foot. Yeah, like, that's pretty common. Sorry. Sorry, I went to public school. Um, fire is awesome. All right, that's the only thing some of y'all heard today. Fire is awesome. It's beautiful. In its right place. In the fireplace. In the fire pit on a candle but outside of that it destroys if you're single here today quit trying to justify your sexual sin because the Lord is taking it extremely seriously you are saying engaging in those acts that he is my husband when he is not you are saying by engaging in those acts she is my wife when she is not for those of us who are married in this room you need to understand the beauty the the we have kids so i have to be careful the physical image of intimacy is 
that there is this mass, that there is oneness, that you can't separate. It is to be together. It is for unity. Every couple in here has experienced that if you have a healthy relationship. You know, you don't like each other. You're at each other's throats. You're mad at each other. And then you begin to make up. Right? Everybody, everybody got me? And then all of a sudden you like, it's like the magic pixie. <laughs> like, oh, I love you. <laughs> right? Why? Because it's God's design for it to be that way. It reunites what was broken. And that's beautiful. All right, second thing. First one, unification. This gift is created to create unification between a man and a woman in a relationship that, that happens no other way. The second thing is recreation. What is it recreating? Every time a husband and wife engage in this activity, it is a covenant renewal ceremony. It is as though every time that you participate in physical intimacy, that you are having your wedding day all over again. It is to remind you, I give you only of myself, only to you. It is meant to do that. It is a way of reminding and reuniting a husband and wife. It is supposed to recommit themselves to each other. I give myself only to you. I will, I will, I will, I will only to you. So the first thing, unification. The second thing is, it is a recreation of your very wedding day. The third thing is, it's meant for procreation. I won't spend too much time on this. Procreation is... God's given it to us to have children. Genesis 1.28 says to be fruitful and multiply and to fill all of the earth. So that's another purpose behind this. Unification, recreation of our wedding vows and day, a recommitting to each other, procreation. This gift is given to us to have kids. Fourthly, it is given to us for our protection. Notice throughout this passage, that Paul is saying, no, 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 no. If you're married, make sure that you keep doing this. Why? So that it will help you fight the drift toward this sort of sexual sin. Toward any sort of sexual sin. It's going to help you do that. All right? It's for our perfection, or excuse me, protection. Notice here in verse 5. It says, but come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so that's why it's, it's very important for us within our marriages um, to, to have a healthy physical intimacy. And I know that people are all over the place. And I, I, I don't think the Bible necessarily gives us, um, you know, it, it, it does not give us a how-to on everything. Okay? So I want to speak very quickly to the, the couple in the room that this is an area of majorly, a, a major struggle for you. And I'm not talking about the, the family necessarily that has like some physical problems and things like that. I, uh, I think it's important to address 
that there is much temptation that comes when there is not healthy intimacy. Now, specifically, let me speak to my sisters because this is stereotypical, and I know that it, it should not be. And, and it's always been said that, you know, men want this more than women want this. I can't tell you how many horror stories that I've had to deal with pastorally of people who did not have a healthy physical relationship inside their marriage, and then it later came out that this husband was um, addicted to pornography. Okay? Let, let's be very clear. If, if there's not participation there, and if someone has all of a sudden decided we're not going to do that anymore, again, the Bible says, don't do that, right? But specifically to my sisters, never read the, you, you do not have to put up with abuse of any kind. This is not on-demand service, not saying that either. But if there's some issues that are taking place, I want you to also understand that if your husband ends up looking at uh, pornography, that, that that is not justified by your lack of desire for intimacy. He's not given a free pass to go disobey the Lord and look at these things even though you're having problems in this area at home. Okay? And if there's areas that you're having like this, then let's be adults and let's get help. Because usually what ends up happening is that, that once you peel back the onion, like that's all the, the, the fruit of the tree, but once you peel back that onion, you begin to realize that there's actually deeper and much more serious issues taking place in this marriage, and it's manifesting itself out by the lack of intimacy in their marriage. But I've literally heard husbands say, well, she won't participate, and so I'm just going to go do this over here. That is wrong, and it is evil if you're doing that. But if there's problems within that marriage, you guys, it's, I mean, if you don't hear anything else, you know what everybody needs in here? Jesus and counseling. Every single person in this room. All right, that was free. Like, you need help. I need help about a variety of things, not just this. Like, go to doctors, get therapy, get help, get marriage counseling. But you can't just pretend like this stuff is just, well, we just sweep it on the rug. Because, again, there's major temptation there. Major temptation. And a healthy relationship in this way helps to curb that temptation. It really does. All right? Number five. This is one of my favorites. Recreation. This is given to us as a gift for unification, for recreation, for procreation, for our protection, and number five is recreation. It's just supposed to be fun. Have fun. <laughs> like... This passage is not about making babies. It's just like, I love you, you love me, we're married. We like each other. Go have fun. Just go have fun. That's why the book, the Song of Solomon, 
The Lord wants you to hear this. Must be this section, just telling you. <laughs> Got some problems over here. Buck, calm down, son. <laughs> turn it off and then turn it back on. It usually fixes it. Behold the light of the Lamb. I told you it'd be fun. The book, The Song of Solomon, is all about people who are husband and wife enjoying each other and having a lot of fun. And again, if it's not fun for you, be humble enough to get help. Because it, it should be fun. You guys have heard me say this before. Gentlemen, it should not be daily. Chill out. Okay? Chill out. Go for a run. All right? Chill out. But ladies, it should be consistent. Okay? Now, consistent for you and consistent for me may be different. Consistent for my parents and consistent for 23-year-old Eric. Let's pray is different. Okay? Not daily. Not demanding. But it should be consistent. And that, the only way it's going to be consistent, though, is if you have a good friendship to begin with. A good, a good relationship. I'm not talking about manipulation. I'm just talking about, like, we, we genuinely enjoy having fun. And this is a gift from God. This, this isn't dirty talk this morning. I am not a comedian. This is a gift. And if you had sat where I've sat and Pastor Todd have sat and Pastor Justin was sat and have spent hours with people, this is the number one thing as your pastor that I talk to you about and that these guys talk to you about. This is a serious problem for many people, either on the, the, the legalist side or on the liberal side of things. So we're just trying to biblically show you and give you a framework. All right, sorry, got off on the fun. Lastly, in, in, in closing, and the most important, unification, recreation, procreation, protection, recreation, and in all, glorification or adoration. The husband and the wife who are followers of Jesus are worshiping Jesus while engaging in the act. That it is a worship experience it is an opportunity to thank God for this gift. He is not watching in some perverted, pornographic way. He is watching in celebration as his good gift within the marriage is being utilized. And he celebrates. Because he loves you. He loves you so much to say, wait. 
And then he loves you so much to say, be unified, recreate, procreate, protect, have fun. Because you're worshiping Jesus through this physical sexual union is a reflection. It is a shadow in some way. Our relationship with Jesus is not sexual. But it is given to us to ultimately show the union between man and woman in this way is a shadow or reflection of our union that is with Christ. We are one with Jesus. So what is worship? Focusing on Jesus and responding accordingly. And that includes with what happens in the bedroom. That we worship Jesus even in that moment. That he has given us this gift. And we respond accordingly. All right? If you have questions, Todd at missionbg.com. <laughs> <laughs> Call day and night. <laughs> no, I, if if you are having issues, then 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 please come come talk to one of us pastors and know this: none of us are counselors, but we are pastors, and we will. Love you. We will hug you. We will sit down with you. We'll sit down with your husband. We'll sit down with your wife. If you're single, struggling in these areas, we'll sit down and we'll talk with you. And, and we're going to find you some professional help. But you've got to be willing to be humble enough to say, man, this is a really big issue for me. This is something we are struggling with. This is something I'm struggling with. Okay? Because our end goal, our end mission here is we want you to worship Jesus. And the worship of Jesus goes beyond just singing some songs. But the worship of Jesus even takes place in your bedroom. And we want you to have the most God-honoring lives that you can have. All right? You guys have been great. Let's pray.